Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. I hope you're having a great, great day. Um, we're going to, you know, Tulsa, the 100th year, I don't want to say anniversary, but it's like the massacre of, they talk about 300 people, but they didn't take any any record of how many people were killed, uh, 10,000 people displaced, how many homes, at 40 blocks, okay. 40 blocks, black people owned 40 blocks in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And just think about this for a moment. Suppose right today we could get 40 blocks or we had five acres or 10 acres of land and we wanted to create a black community. How could we do that today? How did they do it? Let's look at that first. 40 blocks, some say 43 square blocks. What would that look like if we could take a piece of land today and say, hey, let's create our own black economy. It's going to be for black folk. We're going to enrich. We're going to uplift. We're going to educate. We're going to have health systems. Oh, well, what will we have? What do you need to have in a in an economy that's inclusive, that you have everything in that economy that you need for the folks in that economy. Might want to go back and look at uh, at the Native American tribes roaming the plains or even down in uh, Florida, all on the East Coast, before white Americans came in and moved them out in the plains through the Trail of Tears. Killed them off or move them out of the way so they can take their land. How did they operate? I think if you took a really hard look at it, you'd see that these tribes, these villages, everybody in it, old folk, young folk, children, women, men, they all had their tasks that they had to do. Everybody was dependent on everybody to get the work done that needed to get done for survival. To survive and strive, everybody had to carry their weight. And that's the first value of cooperation, self-help. Self-help. So if you take a look at these villages early on, or if you take a look at Tulsa and all these other towns that grew up after World War I, after the Civil War, Folks saying, we are going to be self-determined. We are going to help ourselves. We're going to better ourselves. What you're finding in all of these circumstances where the Native Americans on the plains or in, in these, in, on the East Coast, 
if you look at the African tribes, you find out that they had a cooperative spirit, cooperation. They weren't called co-ops like the modern co-op of today. But that's how they operated. Go up to Alaska, go to a lot of places today, you'll still find this cooperative spirit where folks are helping themselves by working together in a group. And in this group, okay, you have decisions are made that are what is best for the group. So you have self-help, and you have to be responsible. Each individual has to be responsible to take care of what it is that they need to do, what their task is. Self-help, self-responsibility. And then in the modern day is democracy. It's one member, one vote. Now, on the plains and in Africa, they had the chief of the tribes. You had the elder group. And these were the ones that made the decisions. So you did not have one member, one vote to what I have read in history, as they do in the cooperative. I have not read about the governance in Tulsa. But they did have this cooperative spirit. Douglas Roshkoff was on our program, and he said that they work cooperatively, and the white folks didn't understand that. They pooled their resources in Tulsa. But I was in a meeting last night, and one of the gentlemen there said he went to Tulsa for the celebration or for the remembrance of the massacre. And he came back with the stat that money turned in Tulsa 32 times. I go, wow, what do you? Because I remember in economics when I took it, they talk about multiplier effect. How often does money, money turn in a community? And I have learned that in black modern day communities, money may turn once or twice. That means that somebody will live in a community, they live in the Bronx, they go over to Manhattan to work, or Washington, D.C. Perfect example. They go work, but then they may go to Maryland or Virginia to buy, because that's where the malls are, that's where the shopping centers are. Or, if they live in Ward 7 or Ward 8, they may have to go to Ward 1 or 2 to shop. In Ward 8, there's no supermarkets. There's one. Okay, so they have to go outside the community to, sh to buy. So that's when it turns one time. It comes in the community and goes right out. But if it's in the community where a person in Ward 1, they go out, they work, they come back in Ward 1, they go shop for food in Ward 1, they go to the cleaners in Ward 1, they get their hair cut in Ward 1, they, they buy their clothes in Ward 1. And then that merchant... He pays his employees, and they shop in World War. So you may get in the white community money turns five or six times, and that just creates wealth. It keeps turning. The same dollar keeps turning the community, and it creates wealth. More people can pay taxes, so government can take care of roads. <laughs> Start to say police. Uh, okay. They can take care of the kinds of things that are needed, electricity, the infrastructure, the things that are needed schools for the community through these taxes. They can fix up their homes because money is turning. Keep their lawns up or 
maybe grow some vegetables. So you get this money turning in a community. Community is wealthier. Community looks better. Community strives better, and they build wealth. More income, more wealth. What they said in Tulsa, money was turning 32 times in Greenwood. I cannot even imagine it. But somebody works in Tulsa, and they shop in Tulsa, and that person shops in Greenwood, and that person shops in Greenwood, and the next person shops in Greenwood. 32 different times that money turns. That's cooperation. That's working together. That's building up each other. That's what cooperatives are. And you get equality and equity. And how can you get this? It's by working together. It's solidarity. Those are the values of cooperation. Those are the values of cooperation. Self-help. It's interesting. It starts with self-help and self-responsibility. It starts with the individual. And then it goes to the group. Democracy. Everybody has the same amount of power, not based on how much cash you have, how many stocks you can buy. Everybody gets one share of stock, and has that one share of stock has one vote. Equality, equity, and solidarity. That's what was in Greenwood. It was a cooperative spirit. And I went to Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhard's book, and... She talks about the league, the National Negro Business League and the Colored Merchants Association. The National Negro Business League was started by Booker T. Washington in 1900 at Tuskegee. And it supported Washington's notion of black self-help. Black self-help. That first principle of cooperation, self-help. Black folks are helping self. We're not looking for a handout. And we can always look for a hand up, particularly if we pay our taxes. Government can help us out. But we are self-help, self-responsible, self-responsibility. And also, like it's not in here, but we hold each other accountable. And he also, Washington also, uh, in, in this NNBL, National Negro Business League, wanted to talk about the development of black capital. Okay. And so in Tulsa, they had this... Colored Merchants Association. It was a national group where local grocery stores, they were the most common business, small businesses in the African-American community. Second was insurance companies. And the purpose of the Colored Merchants Association was to pool money, cooperation, for buying products, that's a purchasing cooperative, and advertising, that's a marketing cooperative, and then to educate African-American merchants about modern business practices. So their goal was to increase store profits by improving the accounting, modernizing store interiors, and creating greater awareness of the buying power of African-Americans. And this was the first attempt to organize the purchasing power of black folk. So we had a Tulsa race of massacre in 1921, but Dr. Gordon in her book, Collective Carriage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practices, says that by 1930, 253 stores were part of the Colored Merchants Association. 32 stores in Tulsa working together. 32, 25 in Dallas, 25 in Manhattan. 
and 10 in Omaha. In 32, they bought a warehouse where they had their products, where they used the CMA label to sell their New York to their New York stores. So here you have cooperation in the 1920s, 30s, and that's what we have to have, have happen now. We're going to take our break, and we're going to come back and talk about some more about Tulsa, but also what we can do today. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We're talking about Tulsa. The hundred years, hundred years ago, these black folks in Tulsa had 40 square blocks, some say 43 square blocks of land, houses, buildings. One person that was on one of the shows that I saw a couple nights ago said that he had 17 houses that all got burned up. And he had $450 coming in a month. And I just multiply that turns out to be he was getting on average twenty six dollars a month rent. So that tells you about what things were costing back then, that basket of goods, rent, uh, bread, milk, what these baskets of goods were costing, it was much, much lower. So you could buy land at a lower prices, buy houses at a lower prices, but people weren't getting paid that much either. Now, I remember in my lifetime where gasoline was twenty five cents a gallon. Where it's four dollars a gallon and four dollars plus in California today, so the cost wasn't that much, but it was still hard to get the money together. So how did they get the capital together to buy the land for these forty-three blocks? How did they build hotels and churches, insurance companies, grocery stores? How did they? get all of these things, what kinds of light manufacturing may they have, they have other kinds of manufacturing. Back then it would have been horse and buggies and I remember in one of the programs talking about the first black family that bought a, a car. Okay, so what kinds of manufacturing, what kind of farming, how do they get their food? Did they, did they produce their own food? Did they have farms? And it, the question becomes today, if we had a piece of land, okay, and this has been sort of what Carter G. Woodson talked about, Booker T. Washington talked about, Marvin Garvey talked about, of how do we get our own system and we make our own money, whether it's going back to Africa or doing it here? How do we do what was done in Greenwood and some, I want to say, 45 other communities? There were these other towns that popped up. What would we do today? So what we have, we had on, on the program last week, uh, we had Roger Green on. And they've created a Citizen Share Brooklyn, and they're creating an ecosystem, they're creating a system, uh, economical system. And what they're doing is linking and supporting unionized co-ops. They want people to have living wages and share of the profits. They're building, they want to build houses. And what, what, what uh, Roger shared with me, so they're not taking a, a, 
block of land, five acres, and then building a system on top of it. They're taking the system that's there and figure out how can black and brown people get their own businesses, their own ecosystems, and because they're labor, they want to unionize and create co-ops. These businesses were, right now we have a lot of baby boomers. Talking about trillions of dollars being changed hands from baby boomers to either their children or they sell them or they close them instead of closing them or selling them to anybody else. Roger and other folks around the U.S. are talking about how do you sell these to the employees? How do we convert these from being owned by a baby boomer or two or three and get the employees to buy these businesses and create a co-op? And where there's a union, and maybe even starting a union, then you end up with a unionized co-op. And when I first heard about these union co-ops by going down to Cincinnati, to the Cincinnati Union Cooperation Initiative, I think is what that was called. I went to their annual meetings three times, and it turned out that you have a union. You have, So you have three different power plays. You have the employees that are owners of the co-op or in a worker co-op. That's all it takes for a worker cooperative is the employees own and control the business. And then they hire management. And that management could come from these employees or it could come from outside management. So you have two entities. And if you're not very careful, management, they come in and get more and more and more power and they reduce the power of the employees. So that's what you end up with two groups. But the union becomes a third group. And so now you can have offsetting powers and you can have this accountability between the employees and management and union. And union could be that one in there to help make sure that things are going according to what the employees have said goes. That's what happens in a worker cooperative. The employees set the policies, procedures, and so forth. So this is what in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, were lots and lots and lots of poverty. I can't remember what Roger told me the median family income was, but it was right at what the U.S. is, the poverty line is. And that is taking into consideration all of the wealthy folk that work on Wall Street and so forth. So you have a lot of poverty in Brooklyn and the Bronx. And he said that just in hospitals alone, that hospitals, their supply chain was, is $40 billion a year. $40 billion, that's a B, not the M, million. So how can we create co-ops in Brooklyn is what they're doing, the Citizen Share Brooklyn. How do they get, I don't know, $10 billion worth of quarter of that business? Tenth of the business is $40 billion of sales. How do they get light manufacturing, medium manufacturing? Uh, how do they create housing for the employees there? Okay. And then they're going to, you know, this incubator, they're going to create these businesses and make sure that they work make sure they work and just like a question that was raised right at the beginning of the pandemic is if the nurses and the folks that work in the hospitals own the hospital you can believe they're going to have things in that hospital to protect them the ppes oh they would have had them in there they would have had that 
that stored up. They already knew that a pandemic could happen. They already had plans for what to do when a pandemic happens, but the owners of the hospitals didn't execute that plan. So they were, they were without the protection. So in this world that Roger Green and Citizen Share Brooklyn are doing is how do you create a where they own the businesses and they create the ecosystem, they create the economical system that help those workers, They help black and brown people. And black and brown people own it, they control it, they set the policies that they then, by owning the, the businesses, they also own the profit. So he said the goal is to have a living wage and share in the profit. So this is what's happening in Brooklyn right now. Creating this ecosystem, and you can look at Tulsa, how they did it. And Douglas Rushkoff said on the program is that the whites didn't understand it, and he's a white man. Said they didn't understand it, and became jealous of black folks, who they always discriminate against and try to push under. And you look at how wealthy that they are, how proud that they are. Okay, and so they went to destroy it. I would suggest to you they were looking for a reason because even though the white woman in the elevator said that the black man didn't do anything, the newspaper said the opposite. The white newspaper created the anxiety between the white folk. I would suggest to you they were looking for ways of killing black people, of destroying the black economics. They do not want too many white people. And all white people are not this way. If they were, we wouldn't have had the Underground Railroad. That was mostly white folks. That was a cooperation. But we had white people that have have allied with us uh, all through it, and too many white folk are against us. And they want to kill us. They don't want to see us survive. And we see that today. Donald Trump brought that back up. It didn't start with Donald Trump. It won't end with Donald Trump this White supremacy is what was happening in Tulsa, and that's what's happening today, and that's what's been around in the U.S. And they brought it over here from Europe, that they were superior to the natives. They were superior, and they were civilized, and the natives weren't. If you look around and you look at how they destroy our earth, this is too many of the Europeans, you see that they're not civilized, and how they have massacred the folks in Tulsa and massive Native Americans to steal their land. Too often the slavery and economics of too many white people have been about how can I get their assets, how can I take their labor and not pay them anything for it. Slavery was the ultimate. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. everybody this is Vernon Oaks and the program is everything cooperative now we've been on this show for we've been doing this show for seven and a half years we started out we were only going to do it for the month of October the month of October is cooperative month where we celebrate co-ops around the world and you know co-ops are bigger in other parts of the of the world bigger than they are in the US and there's this rich history of co-ops, particular co-ops in the black community. And I've already mentioned Jessica Gordon Nimhard's book, 
the uh, collective courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practices. It took her 15 years of research to write this book. And what you'd find is that what she found was almost every civil rights leader was impacted by or they took part in the cooperative business model. Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Fannie Lou Hamer, Murray McLeod Bethune, Martin Luther King, Baynard Rustin Thurgood Marshall, A. Philip Randolph, Ella Jo Baker, Harry Belafonte. They all believe in this pooling of the resources, whether that's money, capital, whether that's skills, whether that is physical labor, strength, uh, whether that's knowledge, thought, but pooling together whatever resources you have and then bettering the community. It's self-help. Everybody is helping self, but by collectively, solidarily, putting in, making choices that's best for the community, best for the group, best for the business. This is what this cooperative model is all about. And there's four different types of co-ops. And if you look at it, if you, if you think about you're going to take a piece of land and you're going to start off afresh, what would you need in that land to have an economic system? What do you need to, to create money and to create wealth and to create security, um, to, to create safety? Okay, When you sleep at night, you don't worry about somebody killing you or breaking in. That's what homeless people have to worry about all the time. If you're out in the street, what, who can hurt you? So how do you create safety in an environment? How do you create a means of, of production? How do you create wealth in an economic system in a community? Take a piece of land. You're going to start out fresh. You're going to write out, here's the kinds of businesses that we'll need. These are the kinds of institutions we'll need. Or you do like Roger Green and them are doing. And you say, here is something that's already here. Here's the, the hospitals already here. They're buying $40 billion worth of goods and services, and we're going to tap into that. We're going to start selling them, making for them their food that they need, their laundry services, their linens, what they need in this hospital system. We're going to create businesses to provide that. And I would suggest also that they may own some of those hospitals. But here's how they can take ownership, the different types of co-ops. If the business is owned and controlled by the employees, owned and controlled by the employees, we already talk about it, but it's called a worker co-op. So I can have it that could be any business you can think of could be a worker co-op. Although I have been told that they're finding that businesses of 500 employees, when you get over that, they don't work as efficiently. So you, once you get a business with 500 employees, then you want to break off those businesses. So a business that has 22,000 employees, you may want to break that off if you said 500 is a max or we figure out how we can work them with 1,000 employees if you had a business with 22,000 employees and maybe you end up with 22 businesses. Or 500 is a max, you end up with 44 businesses. And you figure out how these businesses internally communicate, make decisions, set policies, and then how like in Mondragon, Spain, they work together. There's this federation of co-ops. 
So, that's a worker co-op. Any business you can think of could be a worker co-op. Now, if the business is only controlled by the persons that uses the products or services, then it's called a consumer co-op. The people consuming the products or services own the businesses. So you have housing co-ops. The people live in the housing co-ops. They consume the, the business by living there. They own it. It's a housing co-op, a consumer co-ops, credit unions, people that have checking accounts and deposit monies in these financial institutions. They own the business. Credit unions are consumer co-ops. Food co-ops, food co-ops could be owned by the employees. Uh, most of them started out with being owned by the consumer. The people that shop in these food stores, in these grocery stores, they owned the business. Sometimes they would work in it and get credit. Sometimes the more that they shop, if I went in there and I spent $1,000 a month shopping in there and you went in and you spent $100 a month, when it came to dividends, I would end up getting 10 times more than you because I shopped in there more. So the dividends, uh, that the money that was paid out, the sharing of the profits, depended on how much you used the business, how much you used the business. Worker co-op could be in some form of contribution on how you separate and divide the profits. could be on how many hours you worked. But there's some formula, and who makes that formula? Ah, the owners, the workers, or in the case of consumer co-ops, the shoppers and the food co-ops. Recreational equipment, I think it's Institute, or it's a REI is a consumer co-op. They have a couple million members in their cooperative. There's a health clinic in Madison that is owned by the patients. They set policy of how that health center will operate. And pricing. Okay, that's a consumer. So you got a worker co-op, a consumer co-op, and then the next one is a purchasing co-op where a group of people or a group of companies come together and they decide that they are going to purchase things together. And in doing that, they buy in volume and they set up a company. And so the employees in that company know the vendors and, the, and who manufactures the products that they need. So they set up a purchasing contract to buy what the businesses need or the, these people need. In D.C., there's a group called Consumer Purchasing Alliance, and that was churches, nonprofits, charter schools were the members of this. And then this Consumer Purchasing Alliance bought things like trash collection and gas, utilities, and they got a much lower price by working together. And this group of people, employees, knew the businesses, knew the customers that were, were um, or the companies they were buying from, like trash haulers. And that's called a purchasing co-op. And the fourth major one is called marketing co-ops, where a group of people or businesses come together to market their products. Now, for marketing co-ops and purchasing co-ops, farmers have used this a long time. And Department of Agriculture is the main division in, in, in the U.S. government that really understands co-ops because farmers have used marketing co-ops. Farmers come together to market their products. And you'll see companies like Cabot Creamery, Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray, Sunkissed. But artists are beginning to use both of these two. Uh, there's a group in Pittsburgh, a group of black women called Ujama, and they are 
artists, they make things, jewelry, clothing, woodwork, paintings. And then they have a storefront where each individual artist could not have afforded to open a storefront, but working together, they have a storefront and they work in that storefront and then they hire employees to work at storefront. That's called a marketing co-op. And sometimes that's called a producer co-op because farmers may, as Cabot Creamery, the milk farmers take their milk in and Cabot Creamery will make cheese and they will make yogurt and cottage cheese and different things with that and then sell it to markets that that farmer could not sell to. So if you look at all of these businesses, when you start saying, okay, we want to create a system, an economy for black folks. We're working together. Self-help, self-responsibility, what's best for the group. Oh, okay, we want, we want to have housing. Okay, let's, work, let's make some housing co-ops. We want to have a school. Okay, let's make schools, child care, cooperatives. Maybe in the schools, whether that's elementary schools or pre-K or colleges, it could be owned by the students or the parents, or it could be owned by the, the people that work in the colleges or the schools. That's the janitors, the people that work in the cafeteria, that's the, the, the staff, that is uh, the principal, and the, that's principal, and that's the teachers. could be that they own it. And then they make policy procedures best for the students and policy procedures best for the employees. Or the parents own it, like they do in child care. Okay? So transportation, co-ops, manufacturing, banking, credit unions, and even banks owned by the consumer and or the staff. So every kind of business you can think of could be a co-op where people are working together. Let's get that money turning in Brooklyn five times, eight times, 30 times. All right, let's go across the country. Right down in Los Angeles, in Crenshaw, in the neighborhood, South Central, a group of black people in the community are, are attempting to buy the Crenshaw Mall. It's called the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Mall. Baldwin Hills is where the elite blacks lived back in the day. That's the doctors and the dentists, the, the people that had made it in music or entertainment. They lived in Baldwin Hills. The workers, the laborers, lived in Crenshaw. Baldwin Hill literally is on a hill overlooking Crenshaw. If you're in Crenshaw, you're looking up at Baldwin Hill. So, Baldwin Hill Crenshaw Mall is 43-acre mall. And there's a group of black folks that have been trying to buy this mall to make it into co-ops, worker co-ops, 1,200 affordable housing units. And I expect that to be limited equity housing co-ops for all of the benefits that co-ops bring to people. They're trying to buy this mall for approximately $115 million. They have $30 million in the bank, and they have a pledge that they can borrow the other $85 million. And they had, cannot get Deutsche Bank brokerage firm to give them the right to buy that mall, and they had the money and the wherewithal to do that, and they keep giving it to white developers for the fourth time. We'll be right back. Uh, we're going to take our final break today, and we're going to talk about the benefits of co-ops coming back. 
and how you may be able to help the folks at Crenshaw. We'll be right back. National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program. The program is Everything Co-op. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And getting this capital has always been one of the critical issues for any business. How do you create uh, the capital to get started? So the benefits of co-ops. We, um, we've talked about the benefits of co-ops for the seven and a half years we've been on the show. But OCDC, the U.S. Overseas Cooperative Development Council, their research arm, International Cooperative Research Group, have done studies in four countries, Poland, Kenya, Philippines, and Peru. So they've looked at these four countries to ask, to ask and answer the questions, what differences do cooperatives make? What differences do cooperatives make? And we've been talking about these differences, but right now they have scientifically proven that co-ops make tremendous difference for individuals and for communities, just like in Tulsa. They work cooperatively, money turning 32 times into communities. That economic incentives are key motivating factors to join and remain a cooperative. To become a member of a cooperative, one of the key variables is this economic incentive. You get a living wage that Roger Green talked about and share of the profits. And because it's owned and controlled by the, either the workers or the consumers, everybody has the right the same amount of vote, one member, one vote that you feel safe and secure in being in that. So in each of these four countries, the members reported a higher average earnings than a national average. What they did in this study is they, they took one group, about a 1,000 members in, in each country that were members of co-ops and another 1,000 members that were not members of co-op. They have two control groups, members and non-members. Almost 50% men, 50% women in each of the groups. And they found out that those that were in members reported higher average earnings than the national average and had a less likely chance to be poor. And they attribute this prosperity to being a member of a co-op. Another part of this, and we need this in the U.S. as in all of these other countries, is that women... Their economic status improved considerably. They also became leaders. Okay, Their self-respect improved. Their self-worth improved. Financial and social. So co-ops really, really help the individual member and women particularly. But also members in cooperatives, they demonstrate a higher level of trust. This is what you had in Tulsa, inside of Greenwood, 
That trust didn't go on the outside. But inside of Greenwood, you had this trust that if there was a downturn, that people could depend on each other. Okay, it's self-help, self-responsibility, but in the totality of the group. So people worked and they lived. They had networks. Okay, this is so important for safety and security. Corporates are considered positive players in the local economy. Positive players and co-ops have strong potential to serve coming out of COVID-19 and any other pandemic. Co-ops work really, really well in downturns. Uh, FDR used co-ops to come out of the Great Depression. And we can use co-ops here in the U.S. Black communities can definitely use it to come out of the, the, the great pandemics. And it's been used in the past. So these are the benefits of cooperation. And OCDC has proven them in four countries. They're going to do some more research. And I told them I would, they were on the show a couple of weeks ago. And you can go into www.everything.coop and you can listen to these past shows. Roger Green will be up uh, within a week. And uh, you can hear uh, about OCDC and that research and, 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 and get a sense of it. So whether you're in Crenshaw in L.A., and this is what the folks are trying to do. In this 43-acre mall, they're trying, they're wanting to put in worker co-ops. Well, first they want to own it. So the community owns the 43 acres. The community owns the 43 acres. People in the community own the businesses within that mall, whether that is a child care center, boutiques, restaurants, if they put in uh, a studio to work with the folks in Hollywood, that's a camera people or sound people, but it's owned by those workers in that uh, studio. So they're wanting to create this ecosystem, having a credit union. They may also have their own electricity. Have, we haven't talked about it, but I could very, very well see they can have their own grid. So they can create their worker co-ops, their consumer co-ops. They're talking about 1,200 affordable housing units. They can, they, they can have their credit unions. They can create their own rural electric, their own Internet, so everybody in there has their Internet. They can become self-contained ecosystem. And where money turns in there, people that work in that one, one business can go shop in other business and get that money turning and getting wealth to improve. As opposed to selling it to the white developer that now is the fourth group that they're wanting to come in who will build high expensive condos, uh, put in high price stores, and then blacks will be pushed out. Because they cannot afford that, the property taxes will go up, and they will not be able to afford uh, to live in there, even if they already own their own homes. With property taxes going up, insurance going up, the value of the property going up to this place where they cannot afford to stay there, even if they own it, they don't have a mortgage. So this is what happens in gentrification, and they're wanting to come in and stop it. And what happens? What it, it, it looks like it's happening is redlining and commercial building that the white banks 
the white developers, they want to keep that asset in their hands so that they can profit off of it and they can take the working people and push them out. And they don't want blacks to come in because their story that they go in and tell cities is we're the only ones that can do it. And that the, the Crenshaw Mall is currently owned by uh, union pension funds. Black and brown people, union pension fund money owns it, but the pension fund money has hired Deutsche Bank brokerage firm to sell it. And they're not negotiating with, not talking with, not taking the black folks seriously. And they're wanting to keep it in the hands of white people. Tulsa, how do we get control over their land? They stole that land. They killed people and took their properties. They went into their homes and stole their bank, their money. They stole their, their china, their clothing. They wanted what black people had, and they just went and took it with no consequences. The sheriff deputized white folk to go kill these black folk. I'm sure they used the N-word. And take what they have. 43 blocks of businesses. They just went in and took it. This is what's happening at Crenshaw. This is what's been going on in Brooklyn. While all, all around those hotel, uh, hospitals and universities, you have blighted areas. Because they take, the, they take the business to white districts, to white folks, and they keep that money turning in the hands of white folks. We have to stop it. This is what is going on in Crenshaw, that the black folks there are taking control, buying, looking to buy the business. And what I'd like for you to do is go to downtowncrenshaw.com. Go to downtowncrenshaw.com, D-O-W-N-T-O-W-N-C-R-E-N-S-H-A-W.com. Sign up. Donate $5. Become a member. Help them out. No matter where you live, participate. Help the folks out in Crenshaw. Listen, Tulsa is awful. They stole what we had, what we worked hard to get, working together. Folks in Tulsa worked together. Black folks worked together. They built something. White folks came, killed, massacred, and took it. The black descendants need to be paid for that. They need to be paid for having lost all of that wealth. Everybody out there, please live cooperatively this next week. We'll see you next Thursday, and let's work together. Please join in and help the folks at downtown Crenshaw. We'll see you next Thursday.